Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachimim, Father of mercies, we worship you, love you, and adore you. Father, I pray that as we open up your word this morning, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it be your word heard and received, that nothing of me be involved except that which you have ordained for your purposes this morning. Father, I pray that you reveal yourself to us more than we've ever experienced before, and that as we leave this place today, that our hearts and our lives are changed and we're made more in the image and likeness of our Creator and the emulation of our Messiah Yeshua, B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. So this week we're in a double parsha, parsha Vayichel uh, and Pechudei. Um, it is uh, a continuation of what we read about last week, um, and actually a continuation of what we've been reading about for several weeks now. Um, last week we talked about Israel and the golden calf and the sin of the golden calf and how even though God knew in advance that they were going to create the golden calf and declare it as their God and worship it as an idol, uh, that he also had prepared upon them a calling, an anointing for his purposes. And so we saw with Bazalel and, and with Ohaleab, uh, previous to the golden calf, that the Lord said, I've already anointed these guys with my Ruach HaKodesh, my Holy Spirit, to build the tabernacle, which is the temporal dwelling place of the Lord here on earth. Um, and, and then we see the golden calf and we see everything that transpires from there. And we talked about the reality that uh, a lot of times in our lives, we make big mistakes, we, we make stupid mistakes. I mean, day to day we sin, yet we know that God has anointing on our lives, has purpose for our lives, has a calling for our lives, and it's important that we uh, understand that and we try to walk in that calling as much as possible because in spite of everything we've done, in spite of everything that, that we often choose to be, the Lord still wants to use us as believers for His purposes, um, just as He wants to use Israel for his purposes, bringing them into his promises and blessings of the promised land. So this week we read kind of a continuation of that, if you would. A few weeks ago we read about um, God commanding Israel to give an offering for the building of the tabernacle. And, and like we said back then, that it declares to give them all this gold and silver and bronze and dotted, all these things that slaves coming out of Egypt shouldn't have. But somehow, miraculously, the Lord has provided it anyways for his purposes. So this week, post the golden calf, post the destruction of the tablets, post Moses having to carve out new tablets and reascend the mountain and, and the Lord uh, uh, inscribing upon them again the commandments and him bringing them back down and showing them to Israel, post all of that. This week, we actually get to the activity of what was commanded several weeks back. So this week, the Parsha opens up again with a reminder about the Shabbat. Why? Because every time we sin, the Lord wants to, wants to remind us that the Shabbat is an image of us returning to Him, right? On Shabbat, we're commanded to rest in His presence, to have a holy convocation, to worship in community and His presence. And so the Lord wants us to remember Shabbat is for that purpose. So the Shabbat is a reminder of repentance Aside from everything else, I mean, it's already a reminder of creation. It's a reminder of uh, uh, being freed from slavery in Egypt. As believers, it's a reminder of being freed from slavery to sin. Yet in the midst of it, it is also a reminder of the need for repentance and returning back to the Lord. And so he, at the very beginning of this partial reminds Israel of the importance, of the value, of the necessity for observing Shabbat. And then in verse 4, we pick up. 
It says, this is chapter, Exodus chapter 35, verse 4, for those that want to follow along. It says, Moses also said to all the congregation of Israel, the children of Israel, this is the word which Adonai commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering for Adonai, whoever has a willing heart. Let him bring Adonai's offering, gold, silver, and bronze. And as we read, and I, if you notice, I kind of chuckled a little bit in the Torah service when we were reading from the Brechet Shah, and uh, Paul talks about how uh, you know, I'm prepping you to give this freely because I don't want it to, to be like we're extorting you. I don't want it to be extortion in your eyes. I'm prepping you that you give freely for what you've already said you're going to give. And so here the Lord's told Israel to give these things, but specifically he says, and he repeats it here, verse 5, take from among you an offering for Adonai, whoever has a willing heart, let him bring Adonai's offering, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet cloth, and so on and so forth. Verse 10, let every wise-hearted man among you come and make everything that Adonai has commanded, including the tabernacle's tent and its coverings, and so on and so forth. And then again, skipping to verse 20. Then all the congregation of Israel departed from before Moses. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit was willing came and brought Adonai's offering for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service, as well as for the holy garments. Verse 29, every man and woman whose heart made them willing gave toward all the work that Adonai had commanded to be done by Moses' hand. So Israel brought it as a freewill offering to Adonai. And then we move forward again one more time to uh, Exodus chapter 39, beginning at verse 32. Sorry, I'm reading my own bookmarks wrong. Exodus chapter 36, verse 3, says, They received from Moses the entire offering that B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, brought for the work of the service of the sanctuary to build it. They brought freewill offerings to him morning after morning. Then all the skilled men who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came one by one from the work he was doing and said to Moses, The people are bringing much more than enough for the work of this construction that Adonai is commanded to be done. So Moses gave an order and they proclaimed it throughout the camp saying, let neither man nor woman make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing more for the work material they had, they had was sufficient for all the work with much left over. Now what's interesting is, as we discussed last week, God already knew Israel was going to mess up. He already knew they were. It's not like this is some shock to him. You know, we, we serve a God that is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. He knows everything and sees everything. He knows what's going to happen. He knew that you and I were going to show up this morning and hear this message. He knew that you and I were going to mess up all the way up until this point so that we could hear this message. And he knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin, that we would need Messiah so that we could have this message. He knew what was going to happen. It wasn't plan A, plan B, plan C. God doesn't have surprises. God knows. And so he knew that they were going to create the golden calf. He knew that they were going to sin. He knew that they were going to reject the promised land when the 10 spies come back with an evil report. He knew all of this already, yet he had already ordained and anointed and appointed uh, guys to follow the leading of the Ruach HaKodesh of the Holy Spirit to build the tabernacle, his temporal dwelling place. And after the golden calf, after the mistakes of the golden calf, he still commands Israel to follow through with bringing a free will offering of all of the items that are necessary to build the tabernacle so that his presence could dwell in the midst of his people, Israel. 
Now, we know the Word tells us that God's presence cannot dwell in the midst of sin. We know that humanity is fallen and sinful, and as Paul says in Romans, we all fall short of the glory of God. We are not capable on our own because of the fallen reality of sin. We are not capable to allow the presence of the Lord to reside in our midst. And so the Lord, even though all of this was going on, still desired to dwell among His people. He still desired to have a tabernacle built that he could dwell among his people. More importantly, he decided that he desired for Israel to build the tabernacle so that his presence could lead them into his promises. Because you remember the cloud by day and the fire by night led Israel from point to point on their journey. They moved when the Lord said move. They stopped when the Lord said stop. Everything that the presence of the Lord guided them and directed them, they followed it and went. And so in order for that presence of the Lord to be in their midst, in order for them to build the tabernacle, in order for them to bring these offerings, they had to do what? They had to repent. Keep in mind, the Lord says twice now, once a few weeks ago and now in this week's Parsha, the Lord says twice now, only those who are willing to give on their own. He doesn't say, I want everybody to give. Notice with the, the firstborn, we have to redeem our firstborn. It doesn't matter who you are, how wealthy you are, how young you are. It doesn't matter any of those things. It doesn't matter anything. You give equal no matter what. Everybody has to give to redeem the firstborn. But with the tabernacle, with the presence of the Lord, the Lord only wanted those that were willing to have his presence in their lives to give. He only wanted those who were willing to follow the leading of the Lord to give. Because his presence can only dwell in the midst of his people when sin is not a part of our lives. And so Israel had just made this massive, massive error. They had just sinned in a huge way. And the Lord says, I want you to build this because I want to be in your midst. And first they had to repent. And we saw that last week and we see the consequence of their sin with the plague that comes, that breaks out and so on and so forth. But we see that they repent of their sin. They repent of their mistakes. We see that Moses cries out to the Lord, we're not willing to even step forward at all unless you, follow, unless you lead us. And the Lord says, don't worry, I'm going to take you into the promise. He says, no, 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 no. You, you got to understand, Lord, we're not willing to go anywhere if your presence doesn't go with us. We're not willing to go anywhere if your presence doesn't go with us. And so Israel repents, and as a sign of their repentance, not to earn forgiveness, keep in mind, this is very important, as a sign of their repentance, they gave freely as the Spirit led. Notice you're not going to give to the Lord unless His Spirit's leading you in the first place, right? You're not going to know that the Lord is giving. You don't go, okay, well, I'm not going to use this anyways. Here, Lord, I could be rich, but instead you have it. The Spirit of the Lord has to lead. He's got to lead us so that we want his presence in our midst, so that we want to be led by him, so that we want to devote our lives entirely to his service. And so Israel is commanded by God to give only those, though, who have a free and willing heart, only those who are willing and who desire his presence in their midst should give. And so as all of this is going on, Israel begins to bring so much that it's overwhelming. It's more than they could ever need to build not only the tabernacle, not only the priestly garments, but all of the, uh, all of the furnishings for the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the altar, the menorah, the, uh, the showbread table, and so on and so forth. They brought way more than could ever be enough. It tells us in this parsha. it tells us right here what we just read, that one by one, the men that were working to build this stuff, one by one came to Moses and said, oh, we got too much. Tell them to stop. And the next night, Moses, we got too much too. Don't give us what they, don't keep multiplying. We've got too much. Just tell Israel, we've got way more than enough. We're going to have stuff left over. It's okay. We don't need any more. They gave so willingly out of their repentance, not to 
earn forgiveness, but out of their repentance, they gave so willingly, they followed the Lord so willingly that there was an overabundance to provide. Now, this, it's important to note, this isn't so that Aaron could buy a, a nice jet to fly him around, right? This wasn't so that there could be a multi-billion dollar building that could house an arcade for the kids. This wasn't so that there could be uh, uh, you know, a, a Maserati or a Lamborghini or something in the pastor's only parking spot. This wasn't so that, so that the, the, the uh, congregation of Israel could, could have a way to be able to, to build these really beautiful buildings that we could teach people about the ways we want them to do things. Um, uh, we call them cemeteries. I mean, um, uh, seminaries. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> It wasn't for any of that. The Lord wanted them to give for what? So that they could build somewhere for his presence to reside in their midst. And they gave willingly for what? So the Lord's presence could be in their midst. But before they could do that, they had to repent. We read at the end of this Parsha, the end of the double Parsha in, in Exodus chapter 40. This is one of the most beautiful things. In in 39, it tells us that Israel built the tabernacle exactly as the Lord prescribed, that everything was done exactly as the Lord prescribes. And he repeats it again. And then at the end of Exodus chapter 40, it says, verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Adonai filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud resided there, and the glory of Adonai filled the tabernacle. Now, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, Bnei Israel went onward throughout all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not move out until the day that it was. For the cloud of Adonai was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was there by night. And the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Notice it wasn't just the priests that could see it. It wasn't just Moses. It wasn't just the Leviim. It wasn't just the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Naphtali. It was all of the house of Israel could see the presence of the Lord. But before the presence of the Lord could dwell among them, they had to repent. See, we as believers are constantly longing for the power and the presence of the Lord. We're constantly crying out for His Ruach HaKodesh, His Holy Spirit to move. We're constantly screaming for revival. But we're not often willing to repent. You just can't time that. Out of nowhere, a little kid in the room just goes, uh-oh. <laughs> you can't time that. That's just awesome. Um, but the, the reality is, the reality is, is that they had to repent before the presence of the Lord could be in their midst. They had to repent before the Lord could live among them, could dwell among them, and could lead them in the ways that he has for them, and the promises that he has for them, and the restoration and renewal that he has for them. They had to repent Why do we have to repent? You guys have heard me say this before. I have a very simplistic definition of sin. Very simplistic. I don't even deal with, you know, committing murder or lying or anything. That's all, I mean, it's all sin, yes. But I have a very simplistic definition of sin. My definition of sin is this. Anything that we do, anything that's in our life that diminishes the image and likeness of our creator. We were created in his image and likeness. We were created for the world to see him in us. We have been restored and renewed through the blood atonement of Messiah so that people can see him in us. Anything in our lives that diminishes his image and his presence and his likeness in our lives, 
Anything in our lives that diminishes the world around us from seeing Him in our lives is a sin. I don't care what it is. I don't care if the Bible says it's a sin or not. If it's affecting how people see Him or if people see Him in you, it's a sin. And we need to repent of it. If you've committed murder, you need to repent of it. You're probably going to be repenting of it from a square box with bars in front of you, but you're going to be repenting of it. If you've committed adultery or fornication, you need to repent of it. By the way, it's not this sin's worse than that sin. Keep in mind, believers for decades now have been beating up on, on homosexuality as though it's the worst sin imaginable. While at the same time, the guys that are preaching against it the most are the guys that are busted sleeping around on their wives or messing with little kids. I was going to say or worse than that. I don't know how it gets worse than that. Um, but the reality is, is we pick and choose what sins we want to condemn while at the same time we don't want to condemn others because then we have to condemn ourselves. The Brich HaDashah, the New Covenant says, don't point out the speck in somebody else's eyes while ignoring the log in your own. Far too often we live blinded by that log, but we can smell other people's sins. We have sin radar that goes off so that we can point out other people's failures. And when they look back at us to see who's talking, to see if it's really the Lord, they just see a giant log. And we want to beat up on other people. But if the presence of the Lord cannot reside in our midst because of sin in our lives, people are not going to see that presence. The presence of the Lord can't reside in our lives because of sin. We can't possibly be led by the Lord. The Word tells us that Israel, the entirety of Israel, the entire community of Israel saw the presence of the Lord on the tabernacle. They saw it when it lifted and led them. They saw when it rested. The entire nation of Israel experienced the presence of the Lord. We as believers bought by the blood of the Lamb, we have been bought for a single purpose, that we can walk in faithfulness in His leading, His guidance, with His presence in our hearts. With His presence in our hearts, with His words in our hearts, so that they change our lives, so that we can be a beacon of light and hope for others. The Word tells us that the light drives out the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome the light. So it's important for us as believers that that light is the most overwhelming reality of our lives. Because everywhere we go, there's darkness. And if the light's going to, to block out the darkness, if the light's going to drive out the darkness, there needs to be light. For that presence to really interact in our lives in a way that it impacts the world around us. Now don't get me wrong, as believers, if we sin, that doesn't mean that the Spirit of God just leaves us, right? It's just not a reality. But how much more do you think it hurts the Lord when the presence that Israel could only see from a distance that was hidden and guarded in the tabernacle now resides within us and we still decide to sin? We still choose, instead of following His leading, to follow leading the enemy. How much more does it impact those who are supposed to see the Lord in us? How much more does it diminish the image of the Lord in our lives? In Acts chapter 2, and no, I'm not going to deal with the early part, but in Acts chapter 2, after the Ruach HaKodesh falls and Peter preaches at the end, 
verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the emissaries, Fellow brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and let each of one of you be immersed in the name of Messiah Yeshua for the removal of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, be immersed for the removal of sin, and you will receive the Ruach HaKodesh. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far away, as many as Adonai our God calls to himself. Verse 41, so many, so those who received his message were immersed, and that day about 3,000 souls were added. It's important that we understand that while we as the body of Messiah are constantly crying out for the presence of the Lord, we're constantly crying out for revival. We're constantly crying out for a fresh outpouring, a fresh anointing, a fresh awaking, a fresh whatever other analogies we can come up with. If we are not walking right in the Lord, if we have not repented of our sins, our failures, day in and day out, then we don't truly want to see His move. We don't truly want to see His impact. We don't truly want to experience His revival. Another wake-up call is, there's only ever been one revival. It happened in Acts chapter 2, and it hasn't stopped since. If we're not experiencing it, it's not because we're not in the right locale. It's because we're not right. Peter was asked, what do we need to do to receive this? Peter said, repent, be immersed in the name of Messiah Yeshua for the removal of sin for the remission of sin, and you will receive the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh, of the Holy Spirit. There's two aspects to repentance. First is repentance, just outright repenting, and the second is remission of sin. And it's beautiful. I love this image. When we repent of our sin to God, it's gone. It's done. In His eye, it doesn't matter. It would be as though if I come in and I spill wine on the carpet here. The ladies of the synagogue who are the ones that typically pour that wine are going to be mad at me that I wasted their hard work. Somebody's going to be mad at me that they've got to clean it up. Uh, and they may forgive me. Eventually I'll be forgiven. Life will be good. Nobody will worry about it. But every time they walk past the stain, they're going to be reminded of it. Every single time they walk past that stain, they're going to be reminded of it. Remission of sin, removal of sin. If we come through with a steam cleaner and we clean that stain up where it doesn't even exist anymore, there's no reminder anymore. Not only have I been forgiven, but they'll never be reminded of it again. Peter says, repent and be immersed for remission of sin. As believers, a lot of times in the body of Messiah, we look at, at, at immersion, at mikvah, at baptism, as though it's a one-time thing. You never have to do it again. We still sin though, don't we? Is there not a continual need for repentance and remission? It's not a matter of salvation at this point, but there's still a continual need for repentance and remission so that we, the tabernacle, the mishkan, the temporal dwelling place of the presence of the Lord, are a clean vessel for His presence. Israel built the tabernacle. The presence of the Lord resided in it. Israel builds the temple. presence of the Lord resides in it. Temple's destroyed. 
Israel's carted off to Babylon because of sin, because of a, a willingness to walk away from the Torah and away from the, the sacrificial system, away from everything that God had commanded. We sinned and we walked away from it all and were taken into captivity in Babylon. They destroy the temple, they destroy Jerusalem, they destroy everything that is Jewish life. Seventy years later, we're allowed to come back. We rebuild the tabernacle or the temple. We put everything back together. Everything goes back in. The ark never comes back. Still don't know where the ark is, by the way. Ark doesn't come back. Not only does it not come back, the presence of the Lord doesn't dwell in the tabernacle because it has to dwell on the ark. The ark contains the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the throne of God here on earth. The second temple, I know people don't like to admit this, the second temple, especially when we look forward to leading to Messiah, the second temple did not contain the presence of the Lord as the first temple did or as the tabernacle did. And I believe that was important. I believe it was a setup because the housing for the presence of the Lord now since Messiah's death, burial, resurrection, ascension becomes us. His Ruach HaKodesh, His Holy Spirit now resides within us. Our hearts become the Holy of Holies. But what's interesting is it was no longer a matter of just the presence of the Lord by cloud and fire upon the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in the temple, but instead God himself, robed in flesh, walked into the temple. Yeshua, God himself, robed in flesh, walked into the temple. It wasn't a matter of only the priest could go in and experience the presence of the Lord, but now the, 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 the very presence of the Lord in, manifests in human form is literally walking among us. And it opened up the door for his presence now to reside literally within us. But in order for that presence to shine, in order for not just Israel to see, but for the whole world to see the presence of the Lord in our hearts and our lives, we have to be willing to repent of our sins. I'm going to read through a couple of notes that I quickly jotted down this morning uh, before service that uh, I don't usually use notes, but these are things that were just bouncing around in my head all of a sudden before service. Israel sinned with a golden calf, and some of this we've already covered. Israel sinned with a golden calf, and God threatened to remove his presence. Remember, he said, I'm just going to wipe them all out and start fresh with Moses. God's presence cannot reside in the midst of sin. Thus, Israel's sin had to be repented for and removed from Israel for his presence to reside in the tabernacle. Israel repents. As a sign of their repentance, they give unreservedly to the building of the tabernacle, an overwhelming amount. Their giving, which is an act of obediently following God's leading, which is a sign of the presence of God leading our lives, which can only happen when sin is removed. Their giving, which is an act of obediently following God's leading, is a sign of their repentance. Because of their repentance and deliverance to the Ruach's leading, God, uh, because of their repentance and obedience, I can't write for anything, because of the repentance and obedience to the Ruach's leading, God's presence dwells among them and in the tabernacle and all see the glory or the cloud of glory of Adonai. Then we forward to Yeshua. Yeshua's primary message throughout the Gospels, his primary message, and it was the same with all the prophets before him, his primary message was repent for the kingdom of God is coming. Repent, for the kingdom of God is coming. In Acts chapter 2, Peter uh, preaches about repentance. The, those that hear, they repent, and they were saved and filled with the Ruach HaKodesh. They repent, they were saved, and the presence of God resides in their midst. 
Repentance leads to the presence of God in our lives, in our midst, in our communities, in our cities, in our country. Repentance leads to the presence of God. The presence of God led Israel throughout the wilderness, throughout their journey. It was the presence of God that leads Israel. And what is it Yeshua commands of us? Yeshua commands us to lay down our lives and to follow him, right? The presence of God leads Israel throughout their journey in the wilderness. Yeshua says, repent and follow me and his presence will lead. We are the Mishkan that was being built in the tabernacle. God wants as humanity, he wants us to be restored and renewed with him in such a way that his presence can live in our lives and can guide our footsteps. As believers, this is something we experience. But, but we have a dampening, a dampening, dampening of that presence when we allow sin into our lives, when we allow the enemy's temptation to be victorious in our lives as opposed to relying on the strength and the fervor of the Lord in our lives that we can overcome temptation. Remember, Yeshua said we could do even greater things than he did. He renounced the temptation of the enemy. The Ruach HaKodesh that was in him that Ruach was in him is now in us, and the same strength that he had in the Ruach HaKodesh is a strength that we have in the Ruach HaKodesh. We can overcome temptation too. We can overcome sin. We can overcome the boundaries, the barriers, the blockades that the enemy tries to put in our lives to dampen the presence of the Lord in our midst. Why is the presence of the Lord in our midst? It's not for you and I. It's for the nations. What is it Moses says when God says, I'm going to wipe Israel out? He says, but Lord, what are the nations going to think? What's Egypt going to think? How are the nations going to see you and your mercy and your love for Israel if you wipe them out? When we sin, I honestly believe in the back of our minds, I bet every single one of us could, if we listen closely, hear the Lord go, what are the nations going to think? But what are the nations going to think? You say you're redeemed and you're bought by the blood of the Lamb. You say you're restored and that you are filled with the Ruach HaKodesh. You say you're a servant of mine. You say that you are a believer. But they don't see that. They see any other Joe Schmo walking around. If we look like the world around us, they're never going to see Messiah. If we sin like the world around us, they're never going to see Messiah. We are the tabernacle. We have been endowed with the Ruach HaKodesh, with the presence of the Lord, so that people will see it and follow it. We don't have to look for a cloud of glory or fire anymore because the presence is now within us. It leads us from the inside. We're not bound down to having to deal with following this tent around the wilderness. Deuteronomy 30, in closing, Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, this is at the end of the blessings and curses, says, now when all these things come upon you, both the blessing and the curses that I've set before you, and you take them to heart in all the nations where Adonai your God has banished you, and you return to Adonai your God and listen to his voice according to all that I am commanding you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, then Adonai your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you, and he will return and gather you from all the people where Adonai, your God, has scattered you. The Lord says, when both the blessings and the curses fall upon you, when you have experienced all of this, then you will turn back to the Lord. Then you will give him your all and he will bring you back. Second Chronicles 7, 14, everybody loves to quote this. When my people 
over whom my name is called, humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their evil ways. That is repentance. We turn from our evil ways. In Hebrew, teshuvah, stop dead in our tracks and we return from our evil ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. What we don't realize is that there's a predication to that statement. If you look in most translations, the W of when, the very first word, or if, the very first word in some translations, it's lowercase, which means in, in English, it's lowercase, which means it was not the beginning of that sentence. We go back, then I appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, verse 12, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, when my people over whom my name is called humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, and will heal their land. The Lord tells us in Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30, that if those things that he just said in 2 Chronicles 7, 12, and 13 happen, it's because we sinned. It's because we chose to walk away from him. And he says, but when it happens, if they just come back to me, if they repent, remember two part, if they repent, then I'll remove their sins. Repentance is because believers were lazy, absolutely lazy. And our mind as believers today in the body of Messiah, repentance is just simply asking for forgiveness. And that's about it. But the word of God tells us that repentance is actually something contrary to that. Because in the modern body of Messiah's idea of repentance, we just keep going about our own lives, doing the same thing over and over and over again. It's not repentance. It's maybe given into guilt a little bit, but it's not repentance. Biblically, repentance is to stop, to turn from our evil ways, Teshuvah, to return. The idea is if you're walking down the aisle going the wrong way, you recognize it, you heed the voice of the Lord, you stop in your track, you 180 degree turn back around, and you walk back to the Lord's loving embrace walking away from our evil ways. God chooses his wording intentionally. If we want his presence in our lives, and it was funny that, that Lynn, as he was closing out worship this morning, was saying the same thing. If we want his presence in our lives, if we want to fill the impact of the Ruach HaKodesh, like I hope we all want to see, if we want to experience the latter-day rain's idea of the Holy Spirit, we have to repent we can't command the world to repent of their sins while refusing to repent of ours. And I don't mean just the big stuff. I mean the stuff we try to hide from everyone. Lay it all on the line. Lay it all down before the Lord so that He can cleanse us of our sins and restore us in fullness so that His presence can be overwhelming in our lives and our lives can be a light for the nations to find the salvation, the redemption, and the restoration that we have found. It's time that we as the body of Messiah decide that we want to choose Him before the world, that we want to choose Him before temptation, that we want to choose Him before sin. It's time for us as the body of Messiah to truly be the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the temporary dwelling place for the presence of the Lord on this waste of a rock floating through space so that we can change the world for his kingdom. Because as Yeshua preached over and over again, as Peter preached over and over again, and as you and I must preach over and over again, repent for the kingdom of God is here. Repent for the kingdom of God is here.
Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, Lord. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your atonement. We thank you for your restoration. Father, I pray that you begin to work in each and every one of our lives and all of those who may hear this message. That you work in our lives in a way that it draws us back to you in a full and abundant embrace. Father, let us give unto you of our hearts and our lives in an overabundance as swiftly and as willingly as Israel gave for the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Father, let us be enamored with your presence as Israel was when they saw it at Mount Sinai. Father, let us be as changed and radiant in your glory as Moses was coming off the mountain. Father, let us be so impactful by your Ruach HaKodesh as Peter walking down the street and people laying their sick at his feet that they may be healed because his shadow fell on them. Father, not for our sake, not for our name, not for our purposes, but for your kingdom and your kingdom alone. Father, that we may be a light to the world around us, that people may find Messiah in us and desire him in them, and that lives be changed for your purposes, for your glory, for your kingdom. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen.